I don't know when you uh, look at your current circumstances, and you, I don't know if you've, if, if you've ever wondered, how on earth did I get here, to this point? You know, or perhaps even on a more negative, why am I going through this? Uh, and I, I, I guess the bigger question on that, on that is, you know, have I trusted God in this as well? Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I think life gets fairly busy, doesn't it? And we can ignore even getting, thinking about how we got to a, certain, to a certain situation. Engaging with the reality of our lives, whether there be struggles or joys. And in the busyness that many of us will face, do we neglect to kind of see where God is in that? Have we been trusting his promises in and through the circumstances that we've been living through? I guess very few of us are exactly the people that we intended to be five years ago as we look forward to today. Very few of us will have anticipated all the things that we will have gone through in the last five years. Again, the highs or the lows. And in all that, as you look back, and in all the ways that you might look forward to and all the potential that lies before you, have you trusted God in all your circumstances and will you trust God in all your circumstances? Will you trust his promises in his word, the Bible? Oh, let me just think very practically what that might look like. You know, how can you trust God's promises when you're working just so many hours in a job that you're farther and less than, you know, you're not that enamoured with it? You know, how can you trust God's promises when you're perhaps single and you long to be married? Or when, you know, your children are just driving you nuts day after day. You know, when people have let you down or when you're ill or in pain. And how can you trust God's promises when someone betrays you or plays you as a fool? When you long for children or more children, it's just not happening. How can you trust, let's think, a bigger, bigger picture. How can you trust God's promises when you look out in the world and you see there's so much suffering, so much evil... Here's the big one. How can you trust God's promises when someone that you love so dearly dies? How can we trust God's promises in our lives? I think what we see here in 1 Samuel 23 is David did hear. He did trust God's promises for him. And so as we walk through this 3,000-year-old masterpiece of history... Hopefully we will learn something of what it is to trust God, to trust God's promises for us. It's an amazing story, this chapter, isn't it? And essentially, I don't know if you spotted it, it's really a chase. It's a bit of a, you know, there's a war, there's a battle, there's this guy coming. Saul is like the 10th century BC Mad Max. I don't know if you've seen that new film yet, but he kind of gives me that kind of flavour, doesn't it? There's adventure, but with a really big twist at the end. I don't know if you spotted that. But I guess the backbone of the whole story goes the whole way through is God's faithfulness to his promises. You'll notice on your sheets there, there's uh, three uh, brief points. So we're going to go through those now. We're going to see how we can trust God's promises. And we'll see that we can trust God's promises because he guides us, because he encourages us. And he provides for us. Let's go to that first point, therefore. He guides us. Really looking here, it's throughout the chapter, but let's focus that really on verse 1 to 14. Let's pick up the story, though. Cast your eyes down to verse 1 and 2. Again, because it's narrative, what we need to do, just a bit of a point when you were looking at big narrative stories, what you really need to do is we need to run through some of the story very quickly 
and try to get to kind of the, 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 the teaching point within that story, if we can. So let's run through it a bit, if we can. Well, verse 1 and 2. We see there, David, verse 1, he hears the Philistines are fighting against the people of Kyla. Basically, what they're doing is they're stealing all their food. They're, they get the food down on the threshing floor. If you've got no grain, you've got no bread, you go pretty hungry. It's a, it's a big, uh, very bad situation. Verse 2, therefore, David goes to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord to see if he should save the people in the city. God answers. That is, God guides. God guides David in what he should do. He says, go save Caleb. Now, despite God doing this again and again and again through 1 Samuel that we've seen and hundreds of years before, God has saved his people, he's provided for his people, he's protected his people so many times and yet still we find ourselves looking at verse 3 and the people are questioning whether he can be trusted. David's soldiers, I think, give, give us here perhaps even a glimmer of our own hearts. Do you spot it in yourself? Look at verse 3. Because everything the soldiers say seems very rational, doesn't it? Very sensible. They're saying, you know, being here in Judah, well, that's bad enough, David. We've got Saul on our backs. Do we really want to go to this place called Kylo? Just, they're nicking some grain off a freshing floor. They're no biggie, you know, don't worry about it too much. Do we really want to put ourselves against the Philistines? You can imagine them thinking, David, are you sure you're getting this guidance from God? I just want to question it. But God was answering David. He's guiding him here. And sometimes it's like that, isn't it? When God speaks to us, when God guides us through his word, the Bible, that there's some hard things that he says to us. Even shocking things at times, aren't there? Let me just give you one little example. What about when God says, love your enemies? Isn't it true that sometimes you're thinking, God, do you really know my boss? I mean, really honestly? Am I meant to, in, in complete entirety? You know, what about God when, it says, when God says something like, you know, be faithful to your wife? There'll be moments when you think, well, all my mates at work, they, they don't think that it's that important. You know, and do you really know the culture in which we live, God? Come on, loosen up a bit. Get with the times. I guess David understands the doubts of the men. Look at verse 4. He inquires of the Lord again. Please don't overlook that simple detail. Detail. It's the greatest privilege that David can know. And I guess it's the greatest privilege that we can know. We can, as David has, through relationship with God, have access to God. We can inquire of God. A huge privilege, that is. Recognise what it is. The eternal, loving, creator, all-powerful, speaking God has given us access to himself. We can hear him speak. He wants to lovingly guide us. He wants us to see that we can trust him in all circumstances, the good and the bad. Oh, God demonstrates that we can trust his promises. Look down at verse 5. They win. Yay! That's what you want to say at the end of that verse. They, they, off they go and they, they free the people of Kyla. That is, they obey God and they listen to his guidance. And when people obey God, as we know throughout the Bible, there comes with that a blessing of obedience. It doesn't mean that if they obey, they're going to suddenly all become healthy and wealthy and the city of Kyla is going to prosper in all sorts of ways. No, that is not what we see in Scripture again and again. But God does promise blessing from obedience. The blessing of a deep-seated contentment and joy because you're living in the way that you've been created to live, to honour your Creator. 
David and his men are learning again that if they obey, if they listen to God's guidance, that they can actually know and experience that God can be trusted. And that is a blessing in itself. Oh, it gets better. Have a look down at verse 6. Uh, we're introduced to the priest now, Abiathar, with his ephod. This, it's a priestly kind of linen garment. We don't know exactly what it looked like or exactly what it did. There's a uh, reference to it back in Judges and the early chapters 1 Samuel. But it was given to the priest uh, as a way of God guiding his people. So David has access to God directly. But now through this priest, Abiathar as well, with his ephod. Now the irony, don't miss it here at all. Because Abiathar is the very priest who in the previous chapter Saul has driven away. Oh, the contrast becomes ever more clear as well between those two chapters, this whole section. Because Saul's the destroyer of Israel, as described in chapter 22. And David, in verse 5 of chapter 23, becomes the saviour of Israel, of Kilah. Oh, back in chapter two, 22, Saul has complained again and again that no one tells him anything. But now David, through Abiathar, what happens? He's guided by God. He's got access to God. Do you see the contrasts? And they become even more apparent. Look down at verse 7. We, we see there that Saul thinks David has made this great mistake. He's kind of bro rubbing his hands, hasn't he? He's trapped in Kyla. He's got this fortified city. They've all locked themselves in it. What are they going to do? They're going to come down and smash him. It's, they think it's great. Saul's been chasing David. He wants him dead. But interestingly, look how Saul speaks in verse 7. Look what he says. He speaks about what God has done. God has handed him over to me. And the question as you read that, are you kind of thinking, well, is God now guiding Saul as he's been guiding David? Is that the situation? No. I guess Saul, like so many, is spiritually clueless at this point. One scholar put it this way, he said he's he's spiritually deluded. That is, like so many people, uh, maybe even us at times, we can use the name of God uh, to appeal to, uh, and even appeal to his word, but in reality we're as deluded as Saul. Not because of any lack of intelligence, not because we don't know our Bibles reasonably well, it's just simply because our hearts aren't in it. We're not following God. We're not trusting God. We're not coming to God for guidance. We're just saying, oh, God's done this for me. Saul has a heart problem. We've seen that throughout the last number of weeks, haven't we? He didn't trust God in his circumstances, and he's just using empty God words. Language with God sort of intermixed into it. He's spiritually deluded. And that is as a result of a heart that's been wandering very slowly away from God. In verse 9 and 10, we see David knew that Saul was plotting against him. God was guiding him again, showing him he could be trusted. (coughs) Which is more than can be said for the people of Kilah. I don't know if you spotted that. It's amazing, is it? The one who saved the people of Kilah will be betrayed by the people of Kilah. I don't know if that sounds like anyone you know. Of course it sounds like the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? Who saved an undeserving people who then rejected and disowned him. So Saul has his plans. His life, through many chapters before and chapters after, has one primary aim. I've got to get rid of David. This one has been made promises by God. Saul wanted to be king, but it's, 
It's very apparent, isn't it, that God has different plans. And we get now to the, if you like, the climax of this section in, in verse 14. That despite the efforts and aggression of Saul, God will fulfill his promises. David will be king. And Saul can do nothing despite his vast wealth, despite his vast army, despite his aggression and anger and vengeance. He can do nothing against the mighty hand of God. Look at verse 14. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Zip. Day after day Saul searched for him. But God did not give David into his hands. So can you trust God? Can you trust God and his promises when you're working in a job which is just exhausting you? Can you trust God when you're single and you long to be married and your children are driving you nuts when people let you down? David clearly thought so. And look at his circumstances. We see it in his actions, but we also see it in his heart. Let me show you something if I can. I want you to flip forward to Psalm chapter 54. I read it out in the beginning of the service. Because here you see his heart. Someone just call out the page number when you find it. What server is that? 575. Thank you. Page 575, Psalm 54. Now, Psalms, you'll recognize that the introduction um, uh, statements there, really kind of verse north, they are scripture, unlike the little um, paragraph titles which uh, the translators put in elsewhere. So where it says for the director of music with the stringed instruments, a maskil, which is a type of a form of music of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, is not David hiding most? The context that he writes this song is here. 1 Samuel 23. Hear his heart. How he trusts God's promises. Look at verse 4. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. See, he isn't looking back at this episode, maybe years on, and just thinking, aren't I the most amazing military genius? Congratulations, David. He's not recalling his bravery, his leadership of his men. He simply recalls that God is his help. God is the one who has sustained him. That is his heart. That is, he knows, certainly as he looks back to these circumstances, it was God who he could trust. In his promises, he has access to God, and God has spoken to him and has guided him directly and now through his priest, Abiathar. Now, Abiathar may be long gone, and we're kind of thinking, where's the ephod that we need? But let me just finish this section with a few words from Hebrews chapter 4, if I may. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy sympathy for our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
My friends, can we trust God's promises in times of plenty and in times of need? We can. Because we have a great high priest. And his name is Jesus. If we trust him, he will guide us in and through his word to glory. So he guides us. Secondly, our second point here, he he encourages us. And I think this is where the story, it has a little turn, and it's an amazing turn. Look at verse 15. David learns that Saul is still after him. Verse 16. I think if you were to think, highlight a shock within this passage, this must be it. It's certainly one of them. Because amazingly, Saul's son, Saul, the man who was trying to kill off David, his son, Jonathan, comes out to the desert to warn David. And also, as you'll see, to strengthen David to trust God's promises. I wish I could spend more time on these four verses. Because I think if there's anything that I've longed for more than anything about our church is that we do this. That we do this. Jonathan is defying his father here, who's a king. He's, at this point, he's putting himself in great danger as he goes out to the desert in so many ways. So Jonathan here is not thinking about himself, what he can gain from the situation. He isn't thinking, ah, is this going to be a strategic move for my getting to be king or getting wealthy or anything like that? No. He goes to David to help him, verse 16, to find strength, to strengthen David in God. How does he do that? He does that with the word of God. The promises of God. Verse 70, do not fear. David's got so many reasons to fear, hasn't it? He's got Saul and all these men after him, trying to kill him. But Jonathan reminds David of the promises of God, that God will not give David into the hands of Saul, despite his best efforts, because God has made a promise to him that he will be king. Jonathan says, trust in his promises. He strengthens him in God's, with God's word and promise. God encourages David here with assurance certain promises that he has made through his servant Jonathan. And I hope this is what you want as a church. I hope we will want to strengthen others. I, I pray that we will want to remind each other of God's promises in his word. Often when we struggle to trust God's promises, isn't it usually the case that we've, well, as you look back and you think, yeah, I've just not been looking at his word. I've been neglecting to remind myself of the promises God has made to me. Let me give you a few examples, if I may. Yeah, what if you're feeling, let's say, a little bit low at the moment, a bit beaten from the frenetic life of London. London's a great place, but it, it can be tiring, can't it? Where are you going to turn in those circumstances? Well, there's a whole heap of practical things you can do, but ultimately, let me give you an example. One, Psalm 145, verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. And the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust his promises to you? What if you're worried, let's say, about money for a very practical thing? There are, again, there are practical things that you can do, but where do you turn? Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, for example. And God will meet all your needs according to his riches of his glory in Christ. And the question remains, do you trust him? Do you trust his promises to you in his word? 
What if you're really at your wit's end, for example? Again, practical things that you ought to to do, but look what God says in Psalm 30. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And what's that pointing to? Of course, the weeping of the crucifixion and the rejoicing of the morning resurrection, the death, deceit, and glory that Jesus Christ secured for us. And the question is, do you trust him? Do you trust his promises? Perhaps you just feel that, oh, I'm just too distant from God. Do you know the kind of stuff that I've done? I feel dirty. There's no way God could want me whatsoever. God can't love me. Psalm 45, verse 8, the Lord is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. The question remains, do you trust him? Do you trust his promises? I'm not dismissing here the right and appropriate hug and listening ear. But we must comfort and encourage one another with the promises of God as Jonathan did with David. Please understand, this is Jonathan who could be king after Saul. He looks beyond his personal comfort. In a sense, he he ignores the path of least resistance and he does what is right. That is, he encourages. God encourages David through him so that he may trust his promises and not be overwhelmed by his circumstances. So if someone says to you, hey, I'm struggling a bit and I'm wondering about you, but do you want to meet up and we just read a bit of the Bible together? I just want to ask, why would you ever decline? I know some of you will be thinking, well, Annie, you just don't know how busy I am. And, and, you know, I just don't have the time for that kind of thing. I just want to gently say, is that really true? Or are you like Saul, spiritually deluded, thinking you're just a bit beyond that? Lastly then, we can trust God's promises because he provides. Lastly and briefly, he provides. So verse 19 to 23, we see David having been in this desert of Ziph, having done nothing to the Ziphites here. He may have even protected them. We're not not sure about that. But we see here, verse 20, that the people of Ziph are absolutely treacherous. As they go then to Saul and they say, hey, you know this David chap that you've been chasing? We know where he is. He's there. Go and get him. Absolute treachery. How tempting would it have been for... Put yourself in David's shoes and just think, how tempting would it have been for David to just boil with rage, to have revenge in his heart? Psalm 54, verse 4, remember. Trust in God. He recalls the Ziphites, but he doesn't speak of his anger. Rather, in Psalm 54, he just (laughs) sings with joy that God is his help. God is the one who sustains. Essentially what he does is he he hands the Ziphites over to God. He says, you deal with them. That's not my my kind of realm anymore. You're the judge. David just lets it go. Meanwhile, verse 24. I'm going to read it a little bit because I found this last bit so exciting. I hope you do too, but let's go for it. Verse 24. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon and in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began the search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. 
And when Saul heard this, he went into the desert moat in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David's men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? There's a mountain there on one side, and we don't know whether they're both going clockwise, or but one's going one way and the other way. We don't know if there's a clash. To... Anyway, you get the picture. But one's on this side, one's on this side. There's a mountain in between. And at this stage, the text seems to point us to a, an absolute inevitability. There is going to be an end. Saul is going to catch up with David. It's all over. Verse 26, halfway through. And Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them. This is the amazing bit. A messenger came. Just a messenger. And he says, come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David. And went to meet the Philistines. And that is why they call this place Salah something about something something called. Which means the Rock of Escape. I wonder who called that the Rock of Escape. It's got to be David, hasn't it? We don't know, but it's going to be, woohoo, I was going to happen. And I escaped. David and Saul were about to meet, and David would surely be killed. But God is sent. He's sovereign over all things. He's made a promise to David. He's going to be king. And he uses the Philistines to attack the land to preserve the chosen king. That is God provides an escape. He demonstrates once again he can be trusted. I wonder if at this moment David was thinking, uh, if it was, this was the moment he was thinking as he wrote this psalm, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, probably Saul and his army, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. And though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. David trusted the promises of God. Even with Saul breathing down his neck. The trials were unrelenting, but even then he did not give up trusting the promises of God. I was going to spend some time on the next chapter. Breathe, sorry, I'm not going to. But let me just point one or two things out if I can. Because David is still pursued. His circumstances get even more dire. And then he meets David, he meets Saul in a cave. And you'll see in verse 3 there of chapter 24 that, that Saul was actually relieving himself as they meet. David's men and him were in the back of the cave, we assume. And they're probably whispering at, the, at that moment as Saul is relieving himself, this is a perfect opportunity. This guy who's been chasing us around mountains in all sorts of places, let's take him down. Of course, you know, isn't, hasn't God provided this situation for us to take out Saul? But David here is the model in that he's not going to take the easy option. That is, he doesn't think pragmatically, he thinks spiritually and withdraws from vengeance on his enemies. Very much like Christ, he entrusts that to God. They come out of the cave and David speaks to Saul. 
Let's just turn to one verse, verse 12 of chapter 24, and we'll close with this. This is David speaking to Saul outside the cave, having not taken the opportunity, the the obvious opportunity to kill the man that's been pursuing him. Look what David says, verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. If you can't relate to this verse, then you've never been deeply hurt by someone that you love and you've given so much to. Everything you want inside you wants revenge. But David has been hurt so many times. But he says, no, it's the Lord's. It's the Lord's work. It's in his hands. David trusts God. He trusts his promises that he will make it right. It's utterly, utterly liberating for David. Of course, we've seen the same in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, for example, says this, When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, instead he trust, entrusted himself to the one who just judges justly. See, Jesus entrusted himself to God. He trusted God and his promises, so much so that in the eternal pain that he suffered on the cross... He even could cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can we trust God's promises? Firstly, he guides us through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his word and by his spirit. How can we trust God's promises? He encourages us through that same word. And I do hope and I pray that there will be more Jonathans amongst us. How can we trust God's promises? Because he provides for us. Not a temporal escape, a momentary escape from an army going round a mountain. But rather he provides an eternal escape. As we entrust our lives to the one who entrusted himself to the death that we deserve. Let's pray as we close. Lord God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. For as we see in this amazing, exciting story, all the action that occurs and and the, the faithfulness and trust that David has in you and your promises to him. Lord, we see that and all the more as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here one who entrusted himself to a death that he did not deserve, but did so in our place. So that we might, if you, in a sense, be entrusted to you for eternity. Amen. Our final.